Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 19. Henry Wimbush Long Cigar Burned Aromatically. The history of Chrome lay on his knee. Slowly he turned over the pages. I can't decide what episode to read to you tonight, he said thoughtfully. Sir Ferdinando's voyages are not without interest. Then, of course, there's his son, Sir Julius. It was he who suffered from the delusion that his perspiration engendered flies. It drove him finally to suicide. Or there's Sir Cyprian. He turned the pages more rapidly. Or Sir Henry or Sir George. No, I'm inclined to think that I won't read about any of these. But you must read something, insisted Mr. Scogan, taking his pipe out of his mouth. I think I shall read about my grandfather, said Henry Wimbush, and the events that led up to his marriage with the eldest daughter of the last Sir Ferdinando. Good, said Mr. Scogan. We're listening. Before I begin reading, said Henry Wimbush, looking up from the book and taking off the pince-nez which he had just fitted to his nose, before we begin... I must say a few preliminary words about Sir Ferdinando, the last of the Lapiths. At the death of the virtuous and unfortunate Sir Hercules, Ferdinando found himself in possession of the family fortune, not a little increased by his father's temperance and thrift. He applied himself forthwith to the task of spending it, which he did in an ample and jovial fashion. By the time he was forty he had eaten and above all drunk and loved away about half his capital and would infallibly have soon got rid of the rest in the same manner, if he had not had the good fortune to become so madly enamoured of the rector's daughter as to make a proposal of marriage. The young lady accepted him, and, in less than a year, had become the absolute mistress of Crome and her husband. An extraordinary reformation made itself apparent in Sir Ferdinando's character. He grew regular and economical in his habits. He even became temperate, rarely drinking more than a bottle and a half of porter to sitting. The waning fortune of the Lapiths began once more to wax, and that in despite of the hard times, for Sir Ferdinando married in 1809, in the height of the Napoleonic Wars. A prosperous and dignified old age, cheered by the spectacle of his children's growth and happiness, for Lady Lapith had already borne him three daughters, and there seemed no good reason why she should not bear many more of them, and sons as well, a patriarchal decline into the family vault seemed now to be Sir Ferdinando's enviable destiny. But Providence willed otherwise. To Napoleon, cause already of such infinite mischief, was due, though perhaps indirectly, the untimely and violent death which put a period to this reformed existence. Sir Ferdinando, who was above all things a patriot, had adopted from the earliest days of the conflict with the French his own peculiar method of celebrating our victories. When the happy news reached London, it was his custom to purchase immediately a large store of liquor, and, 
taking a place on whichever of the outgoing coaches he happened to light upon first, to drive through the country, proclaiming the good news to all he met on the road, and dispensing it, along with the liquor, at every stopping-place to all who cared to listen or drink. Thus, after the Nile, he had driven as far as Edinburgh, and later, when the coaches, wreathed with laurel for triumph, with cypress for mourning, were setting out with the news of Nelson's victory and death, he sat through all a chilly October night on the box of the Norwich Meteor, with a nautical keg of rum on his knees, and two cases of old brandy under the seat. This genial custom was one of the many habits which he abandoned on his marriage. The victories in the peninsula, the retreat from Moscow, Leipzig, and the abdication of the tyrant, all went uncelebrated. It so happened, however, that in the summer of 1815, Sir Ferdinando was staying for a few weeks in the capital. There had been a succession of anxious, doubtful days. Then came the glorious news of Waterloo. It was too much for Sir Ferdinando. His joyous youth awoke again within him. He hurried to his wine merchant, and bought a dozen bottles of 1760 brandy. The bath coach was on the point of starting. He bribed his way onto the box, and, seated in glory beside the driver, proclaimed aloud the downfall of the Corsican bandit, and passed about the warm, liquid joy. They clattered through Uxbridge, Slough, Maidenhead. Sleeping Reading was awakened by the great news. At Didcot, one of the ostlers was so much overcome by patriotic emotions, and the 1760 brandy, that he found it impossible to do up the buckles of the harness. The night began to grow chilly, and Sir Ferdinando found that it was not enough to take a nip at every stage. To keep up his vital warmth, he was compelled to drink between the stages as well. They were approaching Swindon. The coach was travelling at a dizzy speed, six miles in the last half an hour, when, without having manifested the slightest premonitory symptoms of unsteadiness, Sir Ferdinando suddenly toppled sideways off his seat and fell head foremost into the road. An unpleasant jolt awakened the slumbering passengers. The coach was brought to a standstill. The guard ran back with a light. He found Sir Ferdinando still alive, but unconscious. Blood was oozing from his mouth. The back wheels of the coach had passed over his body, breaking most of his ribs and both arms. His skull was fractured in two places. They picked him up, but he was dead before they reached the next stage. So perished Sir Ferdinando, a victim of his own patriotism. Lady Lapith did not marry again, but determined to devote the rest of her life to the well-being of her three children, Georgiana, now five years old, and Emmeline and Caroline, twins of two. Henry Wimbush paused, and once more put on his pince-nez. So much by way of introduction, he said. Now I can begin to read about my grandfather. One moment, said Mr. Scogan, till I've refilled my pipe. Mr. Wimbush waited. Seated apart in a corner of the room, Ivor was showing Mary his sketches of spirit life. They spoke together in whispers. Mr. Scogan had lighted his pipe again. Fire away, he said. Henry Wimbush fired away. It was in the spring of 1833 that my grandfather, George Wimbush, first made acquaintance of the three lovely Lapiths, as they were always called. He was then a young man of twenty-two, with curly yellow hair, and a smooth pink face that was the mirror of his youthful and ingenuous mind. He had been educated at Harrow and Christchurch, he enjoyed hunting and all other field sports, and, though his circumstances were comfortable to the verge of affluence, 
his pleasures were temperate and innocent. His father, an East Indian merchant, had destined him for a political career, and had gone to considerable expense in acquiring a pleasant little Cornish borough as a twenty-first birthday gift for his son. He was justly indignant when, on the very eve of George's majority, the Reform Bill of 1832 swept the borough out of existence. The inauguration of George's political career had to be postponed. At the time he got to know the lovely Lapiths, he was waiting. He was not at all impatient. The lovely Lapiths did not fail to impress him. Georgiana, the eldest, with her black ringlets, her flashing eyes, her noble aquiline profile, her swan-like neck and sloping shoulders, was orientally dazzling. And the twins, with their delicately turned-up noses, their blue eyes and chestnut hair, were an identical pair of ravishingly English charmers. Their conversation at this first meeting proved, however, to be so forbidding that, but for the invincible attraction exercised by their beauty, George would never have had the courage to follow up the acquaintance. The twins, looking up their noses at him with an air of languid superiority, asked him what he thought of the latest French poetry, and whether he liked the Indiana of Georges Chand. But what was almost worse was the question with which Georgiana opened her conversation with him. In music, she asked, leaning forward and fixing him with her large, dark eyes, are you a classicist or a transcendentalist? George did not lose his presence of mind. He had enough appreciation of music to know that he hated anything classical. And so, with a promptitude which did him credit, he replied, I am a transcendentalist. Georgiana smiled bewitchingly. I am glad, she said. So am I. You went to hear the Paganini last week, of course. The Prayer of Moses. Ah, she closed her eyes. Do you know anything more transcendental than that? No, said George, I don't. He hesitated, was about to go on speaking, and then decided that after all it would be wiser not to say, what was in fact true, that he had enjoyed above all Paganini's farmyard impressions. The man had made his fiddle bray like an ass, cluck like a hen, grunt, squeal, bark, neigh, quack, bellow and growl. That last item, in George's estimation, had almost compensated for the tediousness of the rest of the concert. He smiled with pleasure at the thought of it. Yes, decidedly, he was no classicist in music. He was a thorough-going transcendentalist. George followed up this first introduction by paying a call on the young ladies and their mother, who occupied during the season a small but elegant house in the neighbourhood of Berkeley Square. Lady Lapith made a few discreet inquiries, and, having found that George's financial position, character and family were all passably good, she asked him to dine. She hoped and expected that her daughters would all marry into the peerage, but, being a prudent woman, she knew it was advisable to prepare for all contingencies. George Wimbush, she thought, would make an excellent second string for one of the twins. At this first dinner George's partner was Emmeline. They talked of nature. Emmeline protested that to her high mountains were a feeling, and the hum of human cities torture. George agreed that the country was very agreeable, but held that London during the season also had its charms. He noticed with surprise and a certain solicitous distress that Miss Emmeline's appetite was poor, that it didn't, in fact, exist. Two spoonfuls of soup, a morsel of fish, no bird, no meat, and three grapes. That was her whole dinner. 
He looked from time to time at her two sisters. Georgiana and Caroline seemed to be quite as abstemious. They waved away whatever was offered them with an expression of delicate disgust, shutting their eyes and diverting their faces from the proffered dish, as though the lemon sole, the duck, the loin of veal, the trifle, were objects revolting to the sight and smell. George, who thought the dinner capital, ventured to comment on the sisters' lack of appetite. "'Pray don't talk to me of eating,' said Emmeline, drooping like a sensitive plant. "'We find it so coarse, so unspiritual, my sisters and I. One can't think of one's soul while one is eating.' George agreed one couldn't, but one must live, he said. "'Alas!' Emmeline sighed. "'One must. Death is very beautiful, don't you think?' She broke a corner off a piece of toast and began to nibble at it languidly. But since, as you say, one must live, she made a little gesture of resignation. Luckily, a very little suffices to keep one alive. She put down her corner of toast, half eaten. George regarded her with some surprise. She was pale, but she looked extraordinarily healthy, he thought. So did her sisters. Perhaps if you were really spiritual, you needed less food. He clearly was not spiritual. After this he saw them frequently. They all liked him from Lady Lapith downwards. True, he was not very romantic or poetical, but he was such a pleasant, unpretentious, kind-hearted young man that one couldn't help liking him. For his part he thought them wonderful, wonderful, especially Georgiana. He enveloped them all in a warm, protective affection. For they needed protection. They were altogether too frail, too spiritual for this world. They never ate, they were always pale, they often complained of fever, they talked much and lovingly of death, they frequently swooned. Georgiana was the most ethereal of all. Of the three she ate least, swooned most often, talked most of death, and was the palest, with a pallor that was so startling as to appear positively artificial. At any moment, it seemed, she might lose her precarious hold on this material world and become all spirit. To George, the thought was a continual agony, if she were to die. She contrived, however, to live through the season, and that in spite of the numerous balls, routs, and other parties of pleasure which, in company with the rest of the lovely trio, she never failed to attend. In the middle of July, the whole household moved down to the country. George was invited to spend the month of August at Crome. The house-party was distinguished. In the list of visitors figured the names of two marriageable young men of title. George had hoped that the country air, repose, and natural surroundings might have restored to the three sisters their appetites and the rose of their cheeks. He was mistaken. For dinner the first evening Georgiana ate only an olive, two or three salted almonds, and half a peach. She was as pale as ever. During a meal she spoke of love. True love, she said, being infinite and eternal, can only be consummated in eternity. Indiana and Sir Rodolphe celebrated the mystic wedding of their souls by jumping into Niagara. Love is incompatible with life. The wish of two people who truly love one another is not to live together, but to die together. Come, come, my dear, said Lady Lapith, stout and practical. What would become of the next generation, pray, if all the world acted on your principles? Mamma, Georgiana protested, and dropped her eyes. 
In my young days, Lady Lapith went on, I should have been laughed out of countenance if I'd said a thing like that. But then, in my young days, souls weren't as fashionable as they are now, and we didn't think death was at all poetical. It was just unpleasant. Mamma, Emmeline and Caroline implored in unison. In my young days, Lady Lapith was launched into her subject. Nothing, it seemed, could stop her now. In my young days, if you didn't eat, people told you you needed a dose of rhubarb. Nowadays, there was a cry. Georgiana had swooned sideways onto Lord Timpany's shoulder. It was a desperate expedient, but it was successful. Lady Lapith was stopped. The days passed in an uneventful round of pleasures. Of all the gay party, George alone was unhappy. Lord Timpany was paying his court to Georgiana, and it was clear that he was not unfavourably received. George looked on, and his soul was a hell of jealousy and despair. The boisterous company of the young men became intolerable to him. He shrank from them, seeking gloom and solitude. One morning, having broken away from them on some vague pretext, he returned to the house alone. The young men were bathing in the pool below. Their cries and laughter floated up to him, making the quiet house seem lonelier and more silent. The lovely sisters and their mamma still kept their chambers. They did not customarily make their appearance till luncheon, so that the male guests had the morning to themselves. George sat down in the hall and abandoned himself to thought. At any moment she might die. At any moment she might become Lady Timpany. It was terrible, terrible. If she died, then he would die too. He would go to seek her beyond the grave. If she became Lady Timpany, ah, then, the solution of the problem would not be so simple. If she became Lady Timpany, it was a horrible thought. But then suppose she were in love with Timpany, though it seemed incredible that anyone could be in love with Timpany. Suppose her life depended on Timpany. Suppose she couldn't live without him. He was fumbling his way along this clueless labyrinth of suppositions when the clock struck twelve. On the last stroke, like an automaton released by the turning clockwork, a little maid holding a large covered tray popped out of the door that led from the kitchen regions into the hall. From his deep arm chair, George watched her, himself it was evident unobserved, with an idle curiosity. She pattered across the room and came to a halt in front of what seemed a blank expanse of panelling. She reached out her hand, and, to George's extreme astonishment, a little door swung open, revealing the foot of a winding staircase. Turning sideways in order to get her tray through the narrow opening, the little maid darted in with a rapid, crab-like motion. The door closed behind her with a click. A minute later it opened again, and the maid, without her tray, hurried back across the hall and disappeared in the direction of the kitchen. George tried to recompose his thoughts, but an invincible curiosity drew his mind towards the hidden door, the staircase the little maid. It was in vain, he told himself, that the matter was none of his business, that to explore the secrets of that surprising door, that mysterious staircase within, would be a piece of unforgivable rudeness and indiscretion. It was in vain. For five minutes he struggled heroically with this curiosity, but at the end of that time he found himself standing in front of the innocent sheet of panelling through which the little maid had disappeared. A glance sufficed to show him the position of the secret door. Secret, he perceived, only to those who looked with a careless eye, 
It was just an ordinary door let in flush with the panelling. No latch nor handle betrayed its position, but an unobtrusive catch sunk in the wood invited the thumb. George was astonished that he had not noticed it before. Now he had seen it, it was so obvious, almost as obvious as the cupboard door in the library with its lines of imitation shelves and its dummy books. He pulled back the catch and peeped inside. The staircase, of which the degrees were made not of stone but of blocks of ancient oak, wound up and out of sight. A slit-like window admitted the daylight. He was at the foot of the central tower, and the little window looked out over the terrace. They were still shouting and splashing in the pool below. George closed the door and went back to his seat. But his curiosity was not satisfied. Indeed, this partial satisfaction had but whetted his appetite. Where did the staircase lead? What was the errand of the little maid? It was no business of his, he kept repeating, no business of his. He tried to read, but his attention wandered. A quarter past twelve sounded on the harmonious clock. Suddenly determined, George rose, crossed the room, opened the hidden door, and began to ascend the stairs. He passed the first window, corkscrewed round, and came to another. He paused for a moment to look out. His heart beat uncomfortably, as though he were affronting some unknown danger. What he was doing, he told himself, was extremely ungentlemanly, horribly underbred. He tiptoed onward and upward. One more turn, then half a turn, and a door confronted him. He halted now before it, listened, he could hear no sound. Putting his eye to the keyhole, he saw nothing but a stretch of white sunlit wall. Emboldened, he turned the handle and stepped across the threshold. There he halted, petrified by what he saw, mutely gaping. In the middle of a pleasantly sunny little room, it is now Priscilla's boudoir, Mr. Wimbush remarked parenthetically, stood a small circular table of mahogany, crystal, porcelain, and silver, all the shining apparatus of an elegant meal, were mirrored in its polished depths. The carcass of a cold chicken, a bowl of fruit, a great ham deeply gashed to its heart of tenderest white and pink, the brown cannon-ball of a cold plum pudding, a slender hot-bottle, and a decanter of claret, jostled one another for a place on this festive board. And round the table sat the three sisters, the three lovely lapiths eating. At George's sudden entrance they had all looked towards the door, and now they sat petrified by the same astonishment which kept George fixed and staring. Georgiana, who sat immediately facing the door, gazed at him with dark, enormous eyes. Between the thumb and forefinger of her right hand she was holding a drumstick of the dismembered chicken. Her little finger, elegantly crooked, stood apart from the rest of her hand. Her mouth was open, but the drumstick had never reached its destination. It remained suspended, frozen, in mid-air. The other two sisters had turned round to look at the intruder. Caroline still grasped her knife and fork. Emmeline's fingers were round the stem of her claret-glass. For what seemed a very long time, George and the three sisters stared at one another in silence. They were a group of statues. Then, suddenly, there was movement. Georgiana dropped her chicken-bone. Caroline's knife and fork clattered on her plate. The movement propagated itself, grew more decisive. 
Emmeline sprang to her feet, uttering a cry. The wave of panic reached George. He turned and, mumbling something unintelligible as he went, rushed out of the room and down the winding stairs. He came to a standstill in the hall, and there, all by himself in the quiet house, he began to laugh. At luncheon it was noticed that the sisters ate a little more than usual. Georgiana toyed with some French beans and a spoonful of calf's foot jelly. "'I feel a little stronger today,' she said to Lord Timpany, when he congratulated her on this increase of appetite. "'A little more material,' she added with a nervous laugh. Looking up, she caught George's eye. A blush suffused her cheeks, and she looked hastily away. In the garden that afternoon they found themselves for a moment alone. "'You won't tell anyone, George. Promise you won't tell anyone,' she implored. "'It would make us look so ridiculous. And besides, eating is unspiritual, isn't it? Say you won't tell anyone.' "'I will,' said George brutally. "'I'll tell everyone, unless—' "'It's blackmail.' "'I don't care,' said George. "'I'll give you twenty-four hours to decide.' Lady Lapith was disappointed, of course. She'd hoped for better things, for timpani and a coronet. But George, after all, wasn't so bad. They were married at the new year. "'My poor grandfather,' Mr. Wimbush added, as he closed his book and put away his pince-nez. "'Whenever I read in the papers about oppressed nationalities, I think of him.' He relighted his cigar. It was a maternal government, highly centralised, and there were no representative institutions. Henry Wimbush ceased speaking. In the silence that ensued, Ivor's whispered commentary on the spirit sketches once more became audible. Priscilla, who had been dozing, suddenly woke up. "'What?' she said in startled tones of one newly returned to consciousness. "'What?' Jenny caught the words. She looked up, smiled, nodded reassuringly. "'It's about a ham,' she said. "'What's about a ham? What Henry's been reading?' She closed the red notebook lying on her knees and slipped a rubber band round it. "'I'm going to bed,' she announced, and got up. "'So am I,' said Anne, yawning. But she lacked the energy to rise from her armchair. The night was hot and oppressive. Round the open windows the curtains hung unmoving. Ivor, fanning himself with a portrait of an astral being, looked out into the darkness and drew a breath. "'The air's like wool,' he declared. "'It will get cooler after midnight,' said Henry Wimbush, and cautiously added, "'Perhaps. I shan't sleep, I know.' Priscilla turned her head in his direction. The monumental coiffure nodded exorbitantly at her slightest movement. "'You must make an effort,' she said. "'When I can't sleep, I concentrate my will. I say, I will sleep, I am asleep, and pop, off I go. That's the power of thought.' "'But does it work on stuffy nights?' Ivor inquired. "'I simply cannot sleep on a stuffy night.' "'Nor can I,' said Mary, "'except out of doors.' "'Out of doors! What a wonderful idea!' In the end they decided to sleep on the towers, Mary on the western tower, Ivor on the eastern. There was a flat expanse of leads on each of the towers, and you could get a mattress through the trap-doors that opened onto them. Under the stars, under the gibbous moon, assuredly they would sleep.' The mattresses were hauled up, sheets and blankets were spread, and an hour later the two insomniasts, each on his separate tower, were crying their good-nights across the dividing gulf. On Mary the sleep-compelling charm of the open air did not work with its expected magic. Even through the mattress one could not fail to be aware that the leads were extremely hard. 
Then there were noises, the owls screeched tirelessly, and once, roused by some unknown terror, all the geese of the farmyard burst into a sudden frenzy of cackling. The stars and the gibbous moon demanded to be looked at, and when one meteorite had streaked across the sky, you could not help waiting, open-eyed and alert, for the next. Time passed. The moon climbed higher and higher in the sky. Mary felt less sleepy than she had when she first came out. She sat up and looked over the parapet. Had Ivor been able to sleep, she wondered? And, as though in answer to her mental question, from behind the chimney-stack, at the farther end of the roof, a white form noiselessly emerged, a form that, in the moonlight, was recognisably Ivor's. Spreading his arms to right and left like a tightrope dancer, he began to walk forward along the roof-tree of the house. He swayed terrifyingly as he advanced. Mary looked on speechlessly. Perhaps he was walking in his sleep. Suppose he were to wake up suddenly now. If she spoke or moved, it might mean his death. She dared look no more, but sank back into her pillows. She listened intently. For what seemed an immensely long time, there was no sound. Then there was a patter of feet on the tiles, followed by a scrabbling noise and a whispered, Damn! And suddenly Ivor's head and shoulders appeared above the parapet. One leg followed, and then the other. He was on the leads. Mary pretended to wake up with a start. Oh, she said, what are you doing here? I couldn't sleep, he explained, and so I came along to see if you couldn't. One gets bored by oneself on a tower. Don't you find it so? It was light before five. Long, narrow clouds barred the east, their edges bright with orange fire. The sky was pale and watery. With a mournful scream of a soul in pain, a monstrous peacock, flying heavily up from below, alighted on the parapet of the tower. Ivor and Mary started, broad awake. "'Catch him!' cried Ivor, jumping up. "'We'll have a feather.' The frightened peacock ran up and down the parapet in an absurd distress, curtsying and bobbing and clucking. His long tail swung ponderously back and forth as he turned and turned again. Then, with a flap and a swish, he launched himself upon the air and sailed magnificently earthward with a recovered dignity. But he had left a trophy. Ivor had his feather, a long-lashed eye of purple and green, of blue and gold. He handed it to his companion. "'An angel's feather,' he said. Mary looked at it for a moment, gravely and intently. Her purple pyjamas clothed her with an ampleness that hid the lines of her body. She looked like some large, comfortable, unjointed toy, a sort of teddy bear, but a teddy bear with an angel's head, pink cheeks, and hair like a bell of gold. An angel's face, the feather of an angel's wing, somehow the whole atmosphere of this sunrise was rather angelic. "'It's extraordinary to think of sexual selection,' she said at last, looking up from her contemplation of the miraculous feather. "'Extraordinary,' Ivor echoed. "'I select you, you select me. What luck!' He put his arm around her shoulder, and they stood looking eastward. The first sunlight had begun to warm and colour the pale light of the dawn. Mauve pyjamas and white pyjamas, they were a young and charming couple. The rising sun touched their faces. It was all extremely symbolic. But then, if you chose to think so, nothing in this world is not symbolical. Profound and beautiful truth. "'I must be getting back to my tower,' said Ivor at last. "'Already?' "'I'm afraid so. 
The varletry will soon be up and about. Ivor, there was a prolonged and silent farewell. And now, said Ivor, I repeat my tightrope stunt. Mary threw her arms round his neck. You mustn't, Ivor, it's dangerous, please. He had to yield at last to her entreaties. All right, he said. I'll go down through the house and up at the other end. He vanished through the trap-door into the darkness that still lurked within the shuttered house. A minute later he had reappeared on the farther tower. He waved his hand and then sank down out of sight behind the parapet. From below, in the house, came the thin, wasp-like buzzing of an alarm clock. He had gone back just in time. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 20 Ivor was gone. Lounging behind the windscreen in his yellow sedan, he was whirling across rural England. Social and amorous engagements of the most urgent character called him from hall to baronial hall, from castle to castle, from Elizabethan manor house to Georgian mansion, over the whole expanse of the kingdom. Today in Somerset, tomorrow in Warwickshire, and on Saturday in the West Riding. By Tuesday morning in Argyle, Ivor never rested. The whole summer through, from the beginning of July till the end of September, he devoted himself to his engagements. He was a martyr to them. In the autumn he went back to London for a holiday. Crome had been a little incident, an evanescent bubble on the stream of his life. It belonged already to the past. By tea-time he would be at Gobley, and there would be Zenobia's welcoming smile. And on Thursday morning, but that was a long, long way ahead. He would think of Thursday morning when Thursday morning arrived. Meanwhile there was Gobley, meanwhile Zenobia. In the visitor's book at Crome, Ivor had left, according to his invariable custom in these cases, a poem. He had improvised it magisterially in the ten minutes preceding his departure. Dennis and Mr. Scogan strolled back together from the gates of the courtyard, whence they had bidden their last farewells. On the writing-table in the hall they found a visitor's book open, and Ivor's composition scarcely dry. Mr. Scogan read it aloud. The magic of those immemorial kings who webbed enchantment on the bowls of night sleeps in the soul of all created things. In the blue sea, the Acrosoronian height in the eyed butterfly's auricular wings, and orgied visions of the anchorite. In all that singing flies and flying sings, in rain, in pain, in delicate delight. But much more magic, much more cogent spells, weave here their wizardries about my soul. Chrome calls me like the voice of vesperal bells, haunts like a ghostly peopled necropole. Fate tears me hence, hard fate, since far from Chrome my soul must weep remembering its home. "'Very nice and tasteful and tactful,' said Mr. Scogan, when he had finished. "'I am only troubled by the butterfly's auricular wings. "'You have a first-hand knowledge of the workings of a poet's mind, Dennis. "'Perhaps you can explain.' "'What could be simpler?' said Dennis. "'It's a beautiful word, and Ivor wanted to say that the wings were golden. "'You make it luminously clear.' One suffers so much, Dennis went on, from the fact that beautiful words don't always mean what they ought to mean. Recently, for example, I had a whole poem ruined just because the word carminative didn't mean what it ought to have meant. 
Carminative. It's admirable, isn't it? Admirable, Mr. Scogan agreed. And what does it mean? It's a word I've treasured from my earliest infancy, said Dennis. Treasured and loved. They used to give me cinnamon when I had a cold. Quite useless, but not disagreeable. One poured it drop by drop out of narrow bottles, a golden liquor, fierce and fiery. On the label was a list of its virtues, and among other things it was described as being, in the highest degree, carminative. I adore the word, isn't it? Carminative, I used to say to myself when I'd taken my dose. It seems so wonderfully to describe that sensation of internal warmth, that glow, that, what shall I call it, physical self-satisfaction which followed the drinking of cinnamon. Later, when I discovered alcohol, carminative described for me that similar but nobler, more spiritual glow which wine evokes, not only in the body but in the soul as well. The carminative virtues of burgundy, of rum, of old brandy, of lacryma Christi, of marsala, of aliatico, of stout, of gin, of champagne, of claret, of the raw new wine of this year's Tuscan vintage, I compared them, I classified them. Marsala is rosily... Downily carminative, gin pricks and refreshes while it warms. I had a whole table of carmination values, and now, Dennis spread out his hands, palms upwards, despairingly, now I know what carminative really means. Well, what does it mean? asked Mr. Scogan a little impatiently. Carminative, said Dennis, lingering lovingly over the syllables, carminative. I imagined vaguely that it had something to do with... Carmen Carminis, still more vaguely with Caro Carnis, and its derivations like Carnival and Carnation. Carminative, there was the idea of singing and the idea of flesh, rose-coloured and warm, with a suggestion of the jollities of Micarem and the masked holidays of Venice. Carminative, the warmth, the glow, the interior ripeness were all in the word, instead of which. Do come to the point, my dear Dennis, protested Mr. Scogan. Do come to the point. Well, I wrote a poem the other day, said Dennis. I wrote a poem about the effects of love. Others have done the same before you, said Mr. Scogan. There is no need to be ashamed. I was putting forward the notion, Dennis went on, that the effects of love were often similar to the effects of wine, that Eros could intoxicate as well as Bacchus. Love, for example, is essentially carminative. It gives one the sense of warmth, the glow, and passion, carminative as wine, was what I wrote. Not only was the line elegantly sonorous, it was also, I flattered myself, very aptly, compendiously expressive. Everything was in the word carminative, a detailed, exact foreground, an immense, indefinite hinterland of suggestion, and passion carminative as wine. I was not ill-pleased. And then suddenly it occurred to me that I had never actually looked up the word in a dictionary. Carminative had grown up with me from the days of the cinnamon bottle. It had always been taken for granted. Carminative, for me, the word was as rich in content as some tremendous, elaborate work of art. It was a complete landscape with figures. And passion, carminative as wine, it was the first time I had ever committed the word to writing, and all at once I felt I would like lexicographical authority for it. A small English-German dictionary was all I had at hand. I turned up C, ka, ka, calm. There it was, carminative, vintreibend. Vintreibend, he repeated. Mr. Scogan laughed. Dennis shook his head. Ah, he said, for me it was no laughing matter. For me it marked the end of a chapter, the death of something young and precious. 
There were the years, years of childhood and innocence, when I had believed that carminative meant, well, carminative. And now, before me lies the rest of my life, a day, perhaps ten years, half a century, when I shall know that carminative means vintribent. Plus ne suis ce que j'ai été, et ne le saurai jamais être. It is a realisation that makes one rather melancholy. Carminative, said Mr. Scogan thoughtfully. Carminative, Dennis repeated, and they were silent for a time. Words, said Dennis at last, words, I wonder if you can realise how much I love them. You are too much preoccupied with mere things and ideas and people to understand the full beauty of words. Your mind is not a literary mind. The spectacle of Mr. Gladstone finding thirty-four rhymes to the name Margot seems to you rather pathetic than anything else. Madame's envelopes with their versified addresses leave you cold, unless they leave you pitiful. You can't see that. Apt à ne point te cabrer, hué, poste et j'ajouterai dia, si tu ne fuis onze bi rue Balzac, chez cette hérédia, is a little miracle. You're right, said Mr. Scogan, I can't. You don't feel it to be magical? No. That's the best test of the literary mind, said Dennis, the feeling of magic, the sense that words have power. The technical, verbal part of literature is simply a development of magic. Words are man's first and most grandiose invention. With language, he created a whole new universe. What wonder if he loved words and attributed power to them. With fitted, harmonious words, the magicians summoned rabbits out of empty hats and spirits from the elements. Their descendants, the literary men, still go on with the process, mortising their verbal formulas together, and, before the power of the finished spell, trembling with delight and awe. Rabbits out of empty hats? No, their spells are more subtly powerful, for they evoke emotions out of empty minds. Formulated by their art, the most insipid statements become enormously significant. For example, I proffer the constatation, black ladders lack bladders. A self-evident truth, one on which it would not have been worth while to insist had I chosen to formulate it in such words as black fire escapes have no bladders or les échelles noires manquent de vessie. But I put it as I do, black ladders lack bladders. It becomes, for all its self-evidence, significant, unforgettable, moving. The creation by word power of something out of nothing. What is that but magic? And, I may add, what is that but literature? Half the world's greatest poetry is simply Les Echelles Noires Manque des Vessies, translated into magic significance as Black Ladders Lack Bladders. And you can't appreciate words. I'm sorry for you. A mental carminative, said Mr. Scogan reflectively. That's what you need. End of chapter. Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 21 Perched on its four stone mushrooms, the little granary stood two or three feet above the grass of the green close. Beneath it there was a perpetual shade and a damp growth of long, luxuriant grasses. Here, in the shadow, in the green dampness, a family of white ducks had sought shelter from the afternoon sun. Some stood, preening themselves, some reposed with their long bellies pressed to the ground, as though the cool grass were water. 
little social noises burst fitfully forth, and from time to time some pointed tail would execute a brilliant Lystian tremolo. Suddenly their jovial response was shattered. A prodigious thump shook the wooden flooring above their heads. The whole granary trembled. Little fragments of dirt and crumbled wood rained down among them. With a loud, continuous quacking, the ducks rushed out from beneath this nameless menace, and did not stay their flight till they were safely in the farmyard. "'Don't lose your temper,' Anne was saying. "'Listen, you've frightened the ducks. Poor dears, no wonder.' She was sitting sideways in a low wooden chair. Her right elbow rested on the back of the chair, and she supported her cheek on her hand. Her long, slender body drooped into curves of a lazy grace. She was smiling, and she looked at Gombold through half-closed eyes. "'Damn you!' Gombold repeated, and stamped his foot again. He glared at her round the half-finished portrait on the easel. "'Poor ducks!' Anne repeated. The sound of their quacking was faint in the distance. It was inaudible. "'Can't you see you make me lose my time?' he asked. "'I can't work with you dangling about distractingly like this.' You'd lose less time if you stopped talking and stamping your feet and did a little painting for a change. After all, what am I dangling about for, except to be painted? Gombold made a noise like a growl. You're awful, he said, with conviction. Why do you ask me to come and stay here? Why do you tell me you'd like me to paint your portrait? For the simple reason that I like you, at least when you're in a good temper, and that I think you're a good painter. For the simple reason, Gombold mimicked her voice, that you want me to make love to you, and, when I do, to have the amusement of running away. Anne threw back her head and laughed. So you think it amuses me to have to evade your advances? So like a man, if you only knew how gross and awful and boring men are when they try to make love, and you don't want them to make love. If you could only see yourselves through our eyes. Gombold picked up his palette and brushes, and attacked his canvas with the ardour of irritation. I suppose you'll be saying next that you didn't start the game, that it was I who made the first advances, and that you were the innocent victim who sat still and never did anything that could invite or allure me on. So like a man again, said Anne. It's always the same old story about the woman tempting the man. The woman lures, fascinates, invites, and man, noble man, innocent man, falls a victim. My poor Gombold, surely you're not going to sing that old song again. It's so unintelligent and I always thought you were a man of sense. Thanks, said Gumbold. Be a little objective, Anne went on. Can't you see that you're simply externalising your own emotions? That's what you men are always doing. It's so barbarously naive. You feel one of your loose desires for some woman, and, because you desire her strongly, you immediately accuse her of luring you on, of deliberately provoking and inviting the desire. You have the mentality of savages, you might just as well say that a plate of strawberries and cream deliberately lures you on to feel greedy. In ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, women are as passive and innocent as the strawberries and cream. Well, all I can say is that this must be the hundredth case, said Gombold, without looking up. Anne shrugged her shoulders and gave vent to a sigh. I'm at a loss to know whether you're more silly or more rude. After painting for a little time in silence, Gombold began to speak again. And then there's Dennis, he said, renewing the conversation as though it had only just been broken off. You're playing the same game with him. Why can't you leave that wretched young man in peace? 
Anne flushed with a sudden and uncontrollable anger. "'It's perfectly untrue about Dennis,' she said indignantly. "'I never dreamt of playing what you beautifully call the same game with him.' Recovering her calm, she added in her ordinary cooing voice and with her exacerbating smile, "'You've become very protective towards poor Dennis all of a sudden.' "'I have,' Gombold replied, with a gravity that was somehow a little too solemn. "'I don't like to see a young man—' "'Being whirled along the road to ruin,' said Anne, continuing his sentence for him. "'I admire your sentiments, and, believe me, I share them.' She was curiously irritated at what Gombold had said about Dennis. It happened to be so completely untrue. Gombold might have some slight ground for his reproaches. But Dennis, no. She had never flirted with Dennis. Poor boy, he was very sweet. She became somewhat pensive. Gombold painted on with fury the restlessness of an unsatisfied desire, which, before had distracted his mind, making work impossible, seemed now to have converted itself into a kind of feverish energy. When it was finished, he told himself the portrait would be diabolic. He was painting her in the pose she had naturally adopted at the first sitting, seated sideways, her elbow on the back of the chair, her head and shoulders turned at an angle from the rest of her body, towards the front, she had fallen into an attitude of indolent abandonment. He had emphasised the lazy curves of her body, the lines sagged as they crossed the canvas. The grace of the painted figure seemed to be melting into a kind of soft decay. The hand that lay along the knee was as limp as a glove. He was at work on the face now. It had begun to emerge on the canvas, doll-like in its regularity and listlessness. It was Anne's face, but her face as it would be, utterly unillumined by the inward lights of thought and emotion. It was the lazy, expressionless mask which was sometimes her face. The portrait was terribly like, and at the same time it was the most malicious of lies. Yes, it would be diabolic when it was finished, Gumbold decided. He wondered what she would think of it. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 22 For the sake of peace and quiet, Dennis had returned earlier on this same afternoon to his bedroom. He wanted to work, but the hour was a drowsy one, and lunch, so recently eaten, weighed heavily on body and mind. The meridian demon was upon him. He was possessed by that bored and hopeless postprandial melancholy which the Coenobites of old knew and feared under the name of Acidie. He felt, like Ernest Dowson, a little weary. He was in the mood to write something rather exquisite and gentle, and quietest in tone. Something a little droopy, and at the same time, how should he put it, a little infinite. He thought of Anne, of love hopeless and unattainable. Perhaps that was the ideal kind of love, the hopeless kind, the quiet, theoretical kind of love. In this sad mood of repletion he could well believe it. He began to write. An elegant quatrain had flowed from beneath his pen. A brooding love which is, at most, the stealth of moonbeams when they slide, evoking colour's bloodless ghost, or some scarce-breathing breast or side, when his attention was attracted by a sound from outside. He looked down from his window. There they were, Anne and Gombold, talking, laughing together. They crossed the courtyard in front, and passed out of sight through the gate in the right-hand wall. That was the way to the green close in the granary. She was going to sit for him again. 
His pleasantly depressing melancholy was dissipated by a puff of violent emotion. Angrily he threw his quatrain into the waste-paper basket and ran downstairs. The stealth of moonbeams, indeed! In the hall he saw Mr. Scogan. The man seemed to be lying in wait. Dennis tried to escape, but in vain. Mr. Scogan's eye glittered like the eye of the ancient mariner. "'Not so fast,' he said, stretching out a small saurian hand with pointed nails. "'Not so fast. I was just going down to the flower-garden to take the sun. We'll go together.' Dennis abandoned himself. Mr. Scogan put on his hat, and they went out arm in arm. On the shaven turf of the terrace Henry Wimbush and Mary were playing a solemn game of bowls. They descended by the yew-tree walk. It was here, thought Dennis, here that Anne had fallen, here that he had kissed her, here, and he blushed with retrospective shame at the memory, here that he had tried to carry her and failed. Life was awful. "'Sanity,' said Mr. Scogan, suddenly breaking a long silence. "'Sanity. That's what's wrong with me, and that's what will be wrong with you, my dear Dennis, when you're old enough to be sane or insane. In a sane world I should be a great man.' As things are in this curious establishment, I am nothing at all. To all intents and purposes, I don't exist. I am just vox et praeterea nihil. Dennis made no response. He was thinking of other things. After all, he said to himself, after all, Gombold is better looking than I, more entertaining, more confident, and, besides, he's already somebody, and I'm still only potential. Everything that gets done in this world is done by madmen, Mr. Scogan went on. Dennis tried not to listen, but the tireless insistence of Mr. Scogan's discourse gradually compelled his attention. Men such as I am, such as you may possibly become, have never achieved anything. We're too sane, we're merely reasonable. We lack the human touch, the compelling, enthusiastic mania. People are quite ready to listen to the philosophers for a little amusement, just as they would listen to a fiddler or a mountebank. But as to acting on the advice of the man of reason, never. Whenever the choice has had to be made between the man of reason and the madman, the world has unhesitatingly followed the madman. For the madman appeals to what is fundamental, to passion and the instincts. The philosophers to what is superficial and supererogatory, reason. They enter the garden. At the head of one of the alleys stood a green wooden bench, embayed in the midst of a fragrant continent of lavender bushes. It was here, though the place was shadeless and one breathed hot, dry perfume instead of air, it was here that Mr. Scogan elected to sit. He thrived on untempered sunlight. Consider, for example, the case of Luther and Erasmus. He took out his pipe and began to fill it as he talked. There was Erasmus, a man of reason if ever there was one, people listened to him at first, a new virtuoso, performing on that elegant and resourceful instrument, the intellect. They even admired and venerated him. But did he move them to behave as he wanted them to behave, reasonably, decently, or at least a little less porkishly than usual? He did not. And then Luther appears, violent, passionate, a madman, insanely convinced about matters in which there can be no conviction. He shouted, and men rushed to follow him. Erasmus was no longer listened to, he was reviled for his reasonableness. Luther was serious, Luther was reality, like the Great War. Erasmus was only reason and decency, he lacked the power, being a sage, to move men to action. Europe followed Luther, and embarked on a century and a half of war and bloody persecution. 
It's a melancholy story. Mr. Scogan lighted a match. In the intense light the flame was all but invisible. The smell of burning tobacco began to mingle with the sweetly acrid smell of the lavender. If you want to get man to act reasonably, you must set about persuading them in a maniacal manner. The very sane precepts of the founders of religions are only made infectious by means of enthusiasms which to a sane man must appear deplorable. It is humiliating to find how impotent unadulterated sanity is. Sanity, for example, informs us that the only way in which we can preserve civilization is by behaving decently and intelligently. Sanity appeals and argues. Our rulers persevere in their customary porkishness while we acquiesce and obey. The only hope is a maniacal crusade. I am ready when it comes to beat a tambourine with the loudest, but at the same time I shall feel a little ashamed of myself. However, Mr. Scogan shrugged his shoulders and, pipe in hand, made a gesture of resignation. It's futile to complain that things are as they are. The fact remains that sanity unassisted is useless. What we want, then, is a sane and reasonable exploitation of the forces of insanity. We sane men will have the power yet. Mr. Scogan's eyes shone with a more than ordinary brightness, and, taking his pipe out of his mouth, he gave vent to his loud, dry, and somehow rather fiendish laugh. "'But I don't want power,' said Dennis. He was sitting in limp discomfort at one end of the bench, shading his eyes from the intolerable light. Mr. Scogan, bolt upright at the other end, laughed again. "'Everybody wants power,' he said, "'power in some form or other. The sort of power you hanker for is literary power. Some people want power to persecute other human beings.' You expend your lust for power in persecuting words, twisting them, moulding them, torturing them to obey you. But I divagate. Do you? asked Dennis faintly. Yes, Mr. Scogan continued unheeding. The time will come. We men of intelligence will learn to harness the insanities to the service of reason. We can't leave the world any longer to the direction of chance. We can't allow dangerous maniacs like Luther, mad about dogma, like Napoleon, mad about himself, to go on casually appearing and turning everything upside down. In the past it didn't so much matter, but our modern machine is too delicate. A few more knocks like the Great War, another Luther or two, and the whole concern will go to pieces. In future, the men of reason must see that the madness of the world's maniacs is canalized into proper channels, is made to do useful work like a mountain torrent driving a dynamo. "'Making electricity to light a Swiss hotel,' said Dennis. "'You ought to complete the simile.' Mr. Scogan waved away the interruption. "'There's only one thing to be done,' he said. "'The men of intelligence must combine, must conspire, "'and seize power from the imbeciles and maniacs who now direct us. "'They must found the rational state.' The heat that was slowly paralysing all Dennis's mental and bodily faculties seemed to bring to Mr. Scogan additional vitality. He talked with an ever-increasing energy, his hands moved in sharp, quick, precise gestures, his eyes shone. Hard, dry, and continuous, his voice went on sounding and sounding in Dennis's ears with the insistence of mechanical noise. In the rational state, he heard Mr. Scogan saying, human beings will be separated out into distinct species, not according to the colour of their eyes or the shape of their skulls, but according to the qualities of their mind and temperament. Examining psychologists, trained to what would now seem an almost superhuman clairvoyance, will test each child that is born and assign it to its proper species. 
duly labelled and docketed, the child will be given the education suitable to members of its species, and it will be set in adult life to perform those functions which human beings of his variety are capable of performing. "'How many species will there be?' asked Dennis. "'A great many, no doubt,' Mr. Scogan answered. "'The classification will be subtle and elaborate, but it is not in the power of a prophet to go into details, nor is it his business.' I will do more than indicate the three main species into which the subjects of the rational state will be divided. He paused, cleared his throat, and coughed once or twice, evoking in Dennis's mind the vision of a table with a glass and water bottle, and, lying across one corner, a long white pointer for the lantern pictures. Three main species, Mr. Skogan went on, will be these. The directing intelligence, the men of faith, and the herd. Among the intelligences will be found all those capable of thought, those who know how to attain a certain degree of freedom, and, alas, how limited even among the most intelligent that freedom is from the mental bondage of their time. A select body of intelligences drawn from among those who have turned their attention to the problem of practical life will be the governors of the rational state. They will employ as their instruments of power the second great species of humanity, the men of faith, the madmen, as I have been calling them, who believe in things unreasonably, with passion, and are ready to die for their beliefs and their desires. These wild men, with their fearful potentialities for good or for mischief, will no longer be allowed to react casually to a casual environment. There will be no more Caesar Borgias, no more Luthers and Mohammeds, no more Joanna Southcots, no more Comstocks. The old-fashioned man of faith and desire, that haphazard creature of brute circumstance, who might drive men to tears and repentance, or who might equally well set them on to cutting one another's throats, will be replaced by a new sort of madman, still externally the same, still bubbling with a seemingly spontaneous enthusiasm, but, ah, uh, how very different from the madman of the past. For the new man of faith will be expending his passion, his desire, and his enthusiasm in the propagation of some reasonable idea. He will be, all unawares, the tool of some superior intelligence. Mr. Scogan chuckled maliciously. It was as though he were taking a revenge, in the name of reason, on enthusiasts. From their earliest years, as soon, that is, as the examining psychologists have assigned them their place in the classified scheme, the men of faith will have had their special education under the eye of the intelligences. Moulded by a long process of suggestion, they will go out into the world, preaching and practising with a generous mania the coldly reasonable projects of the directors from above. When these projects are accomplished, or when the ideas that were useful a decade ago have ceased to be useful, the intelligences will inspire a new generation of madmen with a new eternal truth. The principal function of the men of faith will be to move and direct the multitude. That third great species consisting of those countless millions who lack intelligence and are without valuable enthusiasm. When any particular effort is required of the herd, when it is thought necessary for the sake of solidarity, that humanity shall be kindled and united by some single enthusiastic desire or idea, the men of faith, primed with some simple and satisfying creed, will be sent out on a mission of evangelization. At ordinary times, when the high spiritual temperature of a crusade would be unhealthy, the men of faith will be quietly and earnestly busy with the great work of education. In the upbringing of the herd, humanity's almost boundless suggestibility will be scientifically exploited. 
systematically, from earliest infancy, its members will be assured that there is no happiness to be found except in work and obedience. They will be made to believe that they are happy, that they are tremendously important beings, and that everything they do is noble and significant. For the lower species, the earth will be restored to the centre of the universe, and man to preeminence on the earth. Oh, I envy the lot of the commonality in the regional state, working there eight hours a day, obeying their betters, convinced of their own grandeur and significance and immortality. They will be marvellously happy, happier than any race of men has ever been. They will go through life in a rosy state of intoxication, from which they will never awake. The men of faith will play the cup-bearers at this lifelong bacchanal, filling and ever filling again with the warm liquor that the intelligences in sad and sober privacy behind the scenes will brew for the intoxication of their subjects. And what will be my place in the rational state? Dennis drowsily inquired from under his shading hand. Mr. Scogan looked at him for a moment in silence. It's difficult to see where you would fit in, he said at last. You couldn't do manual work. You're too independent and unsuggestible to belong to the larger herd. You have none of the characteristics required in a man of faith. As for the directing intelligences, they will have to be marvellously clear and mercilessly penetrating. He paused and shook his head. No, I can see no place for you, only the lethal chamber. Deeply hurt, Dennis emitted the imitation of a loud Homeric laugh. I'm getting sunstroke here, he said, and got up. Mr. Scogan followed his example, and they walked slowly away down the narrow path, brushing the blue lavender flowers in their passage. Dennis pulled a sprig of lavender and sniffed at it, then some dark leaves of rosemary that smelt like incense in a cavernous church. They passed a bed of opium poppies. Dispetaled now, the round, ripe seed-heads were brown and dry, like Polynesian trophies, Dennis thought. Severed heads stuck on poles. He liked the fancy enough to impart it to Mr. Scogan. Like Polynesian trophies, uttered aloud, the fancy seemed less charming and significant than it did when it first occurred to him. There was a silence, and in a growing wave of sound, the whir of the reaping machines swelled up from the fields beyond the garden, and then receded into a remoter hum. It is satisfactory to think, said Mr. Scogan, as they strolled slowly onward, that a multitude of people are toiling in the harvest fields in order that we may talk of Polynesia. Like every other good thing in this world, leisure and culture have to be paid for. Fortunately, however, it is not the leisured and the cultured who have to pay. Let us be duly thankful for that, my dear Dennis, duly thankful, he repeated, and knocked the ashes out of his pipe. Dennis was not listening. He had suddenly remembered Anne. She was with Gombold, alone with him in his studio. It was an intolerable thought. Shall we go and pay a call on Gombold, he suggested carelessly. It would be amusing to see what he's doing now. He laughed inwardly to think how furious Gombold would be when he saw them arriving. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 23 Gombold was by no means so furious at their apparition as Dennis had hoped and expected he would be. Indeed, he was rather pleased than annoyed when the two faces, one brown and pointed, the other round and pale, 
appeared in the frame of the open door. The energy born of his restless irritation was dying within him, returning to its emotional elements. A moment more, and he would have been losing his temper again, and Anne would be keeping hers infuriatingly. Yes, he was positively glad to see them. "'Come in, come in,' he called out hospitably. Followed by Mr. Scogan, Dennis climbed the little ladder and stepped over the threshold. He looked suspiciously from Gombold to his sitter, and could learn nothing from the expression of their faces, except that they both seemed pleased to see the visitors. Were they really glad, or were they cunningly simulating gladness, he wondered. Mr. Scogan, meanwhile, was looking at the portrait. "'Excellent,' he said, approvingly, "'excellent. Almost too true to character, if that is possible. Yes, positively too true. But I am surprised to find you putting in all this psychology business.' He pointed to the face, and with his extended finger followed the slack curves of the painted figure. "'I thought you were one of the fellows who went in exclusively for balanced masses and impinging planes.' Gombold laughed. "'This is a little infidelity,' he said. "'I'm sorry,' said Mr. Scogan. "'I, for one, without ever having had the slightest appreciation of painting, have always taken particular pleasure in cubismus. I like to see pictures from which nature has been completely banished, pictures which are exclusively the product of the human mind. They give me the same pleasure as I derive from a good piece of reasoning, or a mathematical problem, or an achievement of engineering.' Nature, or anything that reminds me of nature, disturbs me. It is too large, too complicated, above all too utterly pointless and incomprehensible. I am at home with the works of man. If I choose to set my mind to it, I can understand anything that any man has made or thought. That is why I always travel by tube, never by bus, if I can possibly help it. For, travelling by bus, one can't avoid seeing, even in London, a few stray works of God, the sky, for example, an occasional tree, the flowers of the window-boxes. But travel by tube, and you see nothing but the works of man, iron riveted into geometrical forms, straight lines of concrete, patterned expanses of tiles. All is human and the product of friendly and comprehensible minds. All philosophies and all religions— what are they but spiritual tubes bored through the universe, through these narrow tunnels, where all is recognisably human, one travels comfortable and secure, contriving to forget that all around and below and above them stretches the blind mass of the earth, endless and unexplored. Yes, give me the tube and cubismus every time. Give me ideas so snug and neat and simple and well made and preserve me from nature, preserve me from all that's inhumanly large and complicated and obscure. I haven't the courage, and, above all, I haven't the time to start wandering in that labyrinth. While Mr. Scogan was discoursing, Dennis had crossed over to the farther side of the little square chamber, where Anne was sitting, still in her graceful, lazy pose on the low chair. "'Well?' he demanded, looking at her almost fiercely. What was he asking of her? He hardly knew himself. Anne looked up at him, and for an answer echoed his, well, in another a laughing key. Dennis had nothing more at the moment to say. Two or three canvases stood in the corner behind Anne's chair, their faces turned to the wall. He pulled them out and began to look at the paintings. 
"'May I see two? Anne requested. He stood them in a row against the wall. Anne had to turn round in her chair to look at them. There was the big canvas of the man fallen from the horse, there was a painting of flowers, there was a small landscape. His hands on the back of the chair, Dennis leaned over her. From behind the easel, at the other side of the room, Mr. Scogan was talking away. For a long time they looked at the pictures, saying nothing, or, rather, Anne looked at the pictures, while Dennis, for the most part, looked at Anne. "'I like the man and the horse, don't you?' she said at last, looking up with an inquiring smile. Dennis nodded, and then, in a queer, strangled voice, as though it had cost him a great effort to utter the words, he said, "'I love you.' It was a remark which Anne had heard a good many times before, mostly heard with equanimity. But on this occasion, perhaps because they had come so unexpectedly, perhaps for some other reason, the words provoked in her a certain surprised commotion. "'My poor Dennis,' she managed to say with a laugh. But she was blushing as she spoke. End of chapter Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 24 It was noon. Dennis, descending from his chamber, where he had been making an unsuccessful effort to write something about nothing in particular, found the drawing-room deserted. He was about to go out into the garden when his eye fell on a familiar but mysterious object the large red notebook in which he had so often seen Jenny quietly and busily scribbling. She had left it lying on the window-seat. The temptation was great. He picked up the book and slipped off the elastic band that kept it discreetly closed. Private, not to be opened, was written in capital letters on the cover. He raised his eyebrows. It was the sort of thing one wrote in one's Latin grammar, while one was still at one's preparatory school. Black is the raven, black is the rook, but blacker the thief who steals this book. It was curiously childish, he thought, and he smiled to himself. He opened the book. What he saw made him wince as though he had been struck. Dennis was his own severest critic, so at least he had always believed. He liked to think of himself as a merciless vivisector, probing into the palpitating entrails of his own soul. He was brown dog to himself. His weakness, his absurdities, no one knew them better than he did. Indeed, in a vague way, he imagined that nobody beside himself was aware of them at all. It seemed somehow inconceivable that he should appear to other people as they appeared to him. Inconceivable that they ever spoke of him among themselves, in the same freely critical and, to be quite honest, mildly malicious tone in which he was accustomed to talk of them. In his own eyes he had defects— but to see them was a privilege reserved for him alone. For the rest of the world he was surely an image of flawless crystal. It was almost axiomatic. On opening the red notebook that crystal image of himself crashed to the ground, and was irreparably shattered. He was not his own severest critic after all. The discovery was a painful one. The fruit of Jenny's unobtrusive scribbling lay before him, a caricature of himself reading. The book was upside down. In the background, a dancing couple recognisable as Gombold and Anne, beneath the legend, Fable of the Wallflower and the Sour Grapes. Fascinated and horrified, Dennis pored over the drawing. 
It was masterful. A mute, inglorious Rouvert appeared in every one of those cruelly clear lines. The expression of the face, an assumed aloofness and superiority, tempered by a feeble envy. The attitude of body and limbs, an attitude of studious and scholarly dignity, given away by the fidgety pose of the turned-in feet. These things were terrible. And more terrible still was the likeness, was the magisterial certainty with which his physical peculiarities were all recorded and subtly exaggerated. Dennis looked deeper into the book. There were caricatures of other people, of Priscilla and Mr. Barbecue Smith, of Henry Wimbush, of Anne and Gombold, of Mr. Scogan, whom Jenny had represented in a light that was more than slightly sinister, that was indeed diabolic, of Mary and Ivor. He scarcely glanced at them. A fearful desire to know the worst about himself possessed him. He turned over the leaves, lingering at nothing that was not his own image. Seven full pages were devoted to him. Private, not to be opened. He had disobeyed the injunction. He had only got what he deserved. Thoughtfully, he closed the book and slid the rubber band once more into its place. Sadder and wiser, he went out onto the terrace. And so this, he reflected, this was how Jenny employed the leisure hours in her ivory tower apart. And he had thought her a simple-minded, uncritical creature. It was he, it seemed, who was the fool. He felt no resentment towards Jenny. No, the distressing thing wasn't Jenny herself. It was what she and the phenomenon of her red book represented, what they stood for and concretely symbolised. They represented all the vast conscious world of men outside himself. They symbolised something that, in his studious solitariness, he was apt not to believe in. He could stand at Piccadilly Circus, he could watch the crowds shuffle past, and still imagine himself the one fully conscious, intelligent individual being among all those thousands. It seemed somehow impossible that other people should be in their way as elaborate and complete as he in his. Impossible, and yet, periodically, he would make some painful discovery about the external world and the horrible reality of its consciousness and its intelligence. The red notebook was one of these discoveries, a footprint in the sand. It put beyond a doubt the fact that the outer world really existed. Sitting on the balustrade of the terrace, he ruminated this unpleasant truth for some time. Still chewing on it, he strolled pensively down towards the swimming pool. A peacock and his hen trailed their shabby finery across the turf of the lower lawn odious birds, their necks thick and greedily fleshy at the roots, tapered up to the cruel inanity of their brainless heads, their flat eyes and piercing beaks. The fabulists were right, he reflected, when they took beasts to illustrate their tractates of human morality. Animals resemble men with all the truthfulness of a caricature. Oh, the red notebook! He threw a piece of stick at the slowly pacing birds. They rushed towards it, thinking it was something to eat. He walked on. The profound shade of a giant ilex tree engulfed him. Like a great wooden octopus, it spread its long arms abroad. Under the spreading ilex tree, he tried to remember who the poem was by, but couldn't. The smith, a brawny man, is he, with arms like rubber bands. Just like his, he would have to try and do his Muller exercises more regularly. He emerged once more into the sunshine. The pool lay before him, reflecting in its bronze mirror the blue and various greens of the summer day. Looking at it, he thought of Anne's bare arms and seal-sleek bathing dress, 
her moving knees and feet. A little loose with the white legs and bounding Barbary. Oh, these rags and tags of other people's making! Would he ever be able to call his brain his own? Was there indeed anything in it that was truly his own, or was it simply an education? He walked slowly round the water's edge, in an embayed recess among the surrounding yew-trees, leaning her back against the pedestal of a pleasantly comic version of the Medici Venus, executed by some nameless mason of the Seicento, he saw Mary pensively sitting. "'Hello,' he said, for he was passing so close to her that he had to say something. Mary looked up. "'Hello,' she answered in a melancholy, uninterested tone. In this alcove, hewed out of the dark trees, the atmosphere seemed to Dennis agreeably elegiac. He sat down beside her under the shadow of the pudic goddess. There was a prolonged silence. At breakfast that morning, Mary had found on her plate a picture-postcard of Gobley Great Park, a stately Georgian pile with a façade sixteen windows wide, parterres in the foreground, huge smooth lawns receding out of the picture to right and left. Ten years more of the hard times, and Gobley, with all its peers, will be deserted and decaying. Fifty years, and the countryside will know the old landmarks no more. They will have vanished as the monasteries vanished before them. At the moment, however, Mary's mind was not moved by these considerations. On the back of the postcard, next to the address, was written, in Ivor's bold, large hand, a single quatrain. Hail, maid of moonlight, bright of the sun, farewell, like plumes moulted in an angel's flight. There sleep within my heart's most mystic cell, memories of morning, memories of the night. There followed a postscript of three lines. Would you mind asking one of the housemaids to forward the packet of safety razor blades I left in the drawer of my washstand? Thanks. Ivor. Seated under the Venus immemorial gesture, Mary considered life and love. The abolition of her repression, so far from bringing the expected peace of mind, had brought nothing but disquiet, a new and hitherto unexperienced misery. Ivor, Ivor, she couldn't do without him now. It was evident, on the other hand, from the poem on the back of the picture postcard, that Ivor could very well do without her. He was at Gobley now, so was Zenobia. Mary knew Zenobia. She thought of the last verse of the song he had sung that night in the garden. Le lendemain, Phyllis Pussard aurait son mouton et chien pour un baiser que le voulage à Lisette donnait pour rien. Mary shed tears at the memory. She had never been so unhappy in all her life before. It was Dennis who first broke the silence. The individual, he began in a soft and sadly philosophical tone, is not a self-supporting universe. There are times when he comes into contact with other individuals when he is forced to take cognizance of the existence of other universes besides himself. He had contrived this highly abstract generalization as a preliminary to a personal confidence. It was the first gambit in a conversation that was to lead up to Jenny's caricatures. True, said Mary, and, generalizing for herself, she added, when one individual comes into intimate contact with another, she, or he, of course, as the case may be, must almost inevitably receive or inflict suffering. One is apt, Dennis went on, to be so spellbound by the spectacle of one's own personality that one forgets that the spectacle presents itself to other people as well as to oneself. Mary was not listening. 
The difficulty, she said, makes itself acutely felt in matters of sex. If one individual seeks intimate contact with another individual in the natural way, she is certain to receive or inflict suffering. If, on the other hand, she avoids contacts, she risks the equally grave sufferings that follow on unnatural repressions. As you see, it's a dilemma. When I think of my own case, said Dennis, making a more decided move in the desired direction, I am amazed how ignorant I am of other people's mentality in general, and above all, and in particular, of their opinions about myself. Our minds are sealed books only occasionally open to the outside world. He made a gesture that was faintly suggestive of the drawing off of a rubber band. It's an awful problem, said Mary thoughtfully. One has to have had personal experience to realise quite how awful it is. Exactly, Dennis nodded. One has to have had first-hand experience. He leaned towards her and slightly lowered his voice. This very morning, for example, he began, but his confidences were cut short. The deep voice of the gong, tempered by distance to a pleasant booming, floated down from the house. It was lunchtime. Mechanically, Mary rose to her feet, and Dennis, a little hurt that she should exhibit such a desperate anxiety for her food and so slight an interest in his spiritual experiences, followed her. They made their way up to the house without speaking. End of chapter